This Bible reading comes from the book of Exodus, chapter 20, verses 1 to 21. Feel free to follow along in the booklets or your Bible if you brought it. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments." You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labour and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honour your father and your mother, so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbour. You shall not covet your neighbour's house. You shall not covet your neighbour's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbour. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. Three months after God had rescued the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, they camped at the Sinai Desert in front of the mountain called It's called Sinai, and this was known as the mountain of God and the place of God. The book of Numbers, chapter 10, verse 11, tells us that they camped there for one whole year. Moses went up to the mountain to talk to God and said, (coughs) You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how, and, and sorry, this is God speaking. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. See, everything belonged to the the Lord, but Israel was his special possession. His diamond on the ring. His treasure. They were distinctive. Set apart like a shining 24-carat diamond on a golden ring, set apart, holy, set apart as a kingdom of priests. 
They will literally have a priestly function in the world. They will be God's representative on earth um, to human beings and they'll be humans representative to God because that's what priests do. Everything that had happened to rescue Israel was God's doing. God was keeping an agreement that he had made first with Abraham, an agreement based on grace, and it would be grace that motivates the Israelites to live out this relationship. This was an agreement that obliged the Israelites to respond in a way that was true and faithful. And as they responded in faithfulness, the Israelites would grow deeper in their intimacy with God. And this was God acting in history and time and place, in a physical space. And the promises he was making to the Israelites camped by the mountain back then would be true for the following generation of Israelites and true for Christians as well, for us. Andrew Reid says in that book that um, Beck mentioned, God was setting apart a people for a task. He did both an outward and missional focus. That means a focus on reaching out and having a mission that reflected God's purposes for the whole world and also one which found its daily routine in being who they were. This was in turn expressed in faithfulness to God and his will and the service of him. And so this is what happened. Moses went down the mountain after God said this and called the elders together and he told them what God had said. And they all responded saying, we will do everything that the Lord has said. So Moses goes back up the mountain again. The Lord says to Moses, I'm going to come down to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. Then Moses reported back to him what the people had said about being obedient. And the Lord said that Moses is to consecrate them. They have to prepare themselves uh, in a special time to have this special time with God. They should wash their clothes. The people will be sealed off from the sacred area on the mountain. And anyone, there will be consequences. Anyone who crosses over that boundary will be severely punished by execution from stoning or arrows. It's very powerful. This is all coming out of Exodus chapter 19, what I'm telling you. God did not want the sinners to to be touched or else um, they will infect the rest of the people with their uncleanness. And there will be a horn blast that continues to sound, then the people are to move up towards the mountain. And Moses does everything God says, including telling them to abstain from sexual relations. Um, I think the original Hebrew says specifically, don't go near a woman. Uh, And we're not to make some special spiritual, super spiritual point here, create new modern rules for ourselves. It's just that we're to see that the holy God of the covenant with Israel, demands that they prepare themselves by separating themselves from things which are normally permitted and good in themselves. So the next day after they had gone through the process of purifying themselves, there was a thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. And everyone in the camp shook with fear. The only one who wasn't shaking with fear was Moses, who was fully prepared for this day. He was focused, and he led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. And now the whole of the creation is responding to what's going on here, to the seriousness of this divine moment. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke. 
because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up uh, like smoke from a furnace and the whole mountain trembled violently. So not only are the people trembling, but the mountain is trembling. The sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder and then Moses spoke and God, God answered him audibly with the sound of thunder, it says. And if there had been any doubt about Moses' authority as a prophet, now the people had no doubt. <laughs> but just when you thought the climax of the event was about to happen, you know, there's the smoke and the thunder and the shaking and the trumpets, then the Lord says, um, hang on, hang on, hang on, just put everything on pause. Moses, come back to me. <laughs> Wait a second. He says, what? Everyone's holding their breath. Moses went up to listen to the Lord and he says, I'm a bit concerned that the people are going to be so excited that they're going to rush up the mountain and cross over the line and then it'll be bad because remember the consequence. So go down and warn the people so that they do not force their way through to see the Lord and perish as a result. And even the priests who approach, approach the Lord must consecrate themselves, purify themselves, or the Lord will break out against them. And Moses says to the Lord, hang on a minute, the people can't come up Mount Sinai because you yourself warned us saying, put limits around the mountain and set it apart as holy. And the Lord replied, go down and bring Aaron up with you. That's his brother. But the priests and the people must not force their way through to come up to the Lord or he will break out against him. So Moses went down to the people one more time and told them everything the Lord had said. And the people were ready. And then the Lord spoke in his thunderous voice. And he told them these ten words, these ten commandments. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. First, don't have any other gods apart from me. Second, don't create any idols and bow down to them. Third, don't misuse the name of the Lord. Four, Keep the Sabbath day holy. Keep it as a day of rest for yourselves. Five, honour your mother and your father. Six, don't kill anyone. Seven, do not commit adultery. Eight, don't steal. Nine, don't lie. And ten, don't covet anything that is your neighbour's. Did I miss anything? No. And that was that. Without doubt, the most epic thing that they had ever witnessed, even more dramatic than the parting of the Red Sea. And the people continued to shake with fear. And Moses said to them, don't be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. And the people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. These Ten Commandments, also known as the Decalogue, supplies what we would say is the detailed content of this covenant between God and his people at Sinai. God is being crystal clear about what he expects from this relationship. And through this encounter with God, Israel has experienced firsthand the nature of her mighty and awesome God. She hears, Israel hears from God the clear expression of his will for them. It's a job description. It's a profile of the holy people. This is how they are to live. 
Now, for the 400 years that the Israelites had lived with Egypt, their Hebrew culture had been gradually influenced, or you could even say colonized by the Egyptian culture. They had been Egyptianized. So as we remember from last Sunday's passage on the crossing of the Red Sea, even when they're fleeing from the Egyptians and running away, they're going, oh, but it'd be, why don't we just go back to Egypt, Moses? They'd rather be slaves in Egypt because they've been so influenced by the Egyptian culture than be free um, from their slavery. Um, and the Ten Commandments are God's gracious gift to these messed up people, confused people, so that they will now live in a way that is pleasing to God. And in a similar way, I've been thinking about this. Um, the church in the West, we, we are also a colonised people. Our culture, the Christian culture, has been colonised. We're not, we're not colonised by... Um, an overlord as, as such, like the Egyptian culture were for the Hebrew people. But in a way, we've been colonised by the post-Christian culture. Western Christians are living in a post-Christian world. In Melbourne, we're living in a post-Christian world and we are seduced by the utopia offered to us by post-Christianity, a world that's post-Christian. We're seduced by what post, the post-Christian culture holds out to us. So on the one hand, we're living the perfect, ultimate, free life, drinking our three-quarter almond lattes and worshipping at the altar of Ikea and middle-class comfort, collecting stamps on our passport, pursuing a, a progressive vision of morality and medical ethics, sexual ethics, and yet on the same time, we are racked with doubt. We are addicted to porn and alcohol. We're in dysfunctional relationships. And we're overrun by anxiety and depression. Our politics holds out so much promise that if we just pursue our particular brand of political um, taste and values that will reach some kind of utopia. And yet look at the state of politics in the West we are messed up. Uh, the rise of the alt-right and judgmental progressive liberalism. And so, so many Christians, especially young Christians, are giving up their devotion to Jesus. And because it's been so colonised by the post-Christian culture that they're giving into a progressive secular fantasy which promises so much, yet delivers so little. We are as disoriented as the Israelites in the Sinai Desert, looking back to Egypt, and yet God holds out his hand to us and says, I'm making you into a holy nation. You will be a kingdom of priests. And what we need to do is relearn how to be obedient to God. And this famous chapter in Exodus is a reminder that God is here for us to show us how to live and that God is gracious. I'm not going to unpack each of the Ten Commandments in this talk, but what I do want to do is have a look at what it says about God and what it says about us and what it says about Jesus. 
because it reveals a lot, the Ten Commandments. The first thing I want to say about what it reveals about God is that it shows us that the law shows us, the Ten Commandments shows us that God is a God of grace. It's come to have this wrong view that um, in the Old Testament, God gives the law, and then in the New Testament, God shows us his grace. That's wrong. Um, God is a God of grace all the way through. And in fact, grace precedes the law. If you think about it, even in the book of Exodus, God hears the cry of his people, free us from slavery, and he steps in. Grace sends Moses and frees them from slavery. And then, out of that act of grace, he graciously gives the law. And this is the way it's always been in the Bible. Grace precedes precedes instruction. If you think about the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve, they live in abundance first, and then God shows them his expectations of how to live. God begun the Hebrew people in the person of Abraham, then he forms a covenant with them. And so it should not surprise us that God's whole framework of ethics is based around grace. The gracious Exodus event And it becomes the foundation of the response of his people. They they, they receive grace, then out of that grace they live for God. They obey, not because they have to, because the the emperor has told them they must, but because they want to respond to the grace he's shown them. So it's a myth that the God of the Old Testament is the God of law and the God of the New Testament is the God of grace. Rather, the God of the Old Testament is the same God as the God of the New Testament. He is a God who shows grace to his people and invites him to respond in obedience and love. And the grace dynamic starts to become obvious as the laws are unpacked in the rest of Exodus. Because we have these, this Decalogue, the Ten, but then the, after that, these laws start to get unpacked and there are more details. So... But I can, I can show you an example, a good example of the, the, the grace dynamic. Exodus 22, verse 21, 21 says, Do not mistreat or oppress a foreigner, for you were foreigners in Egypt too. You cried out to me when you were oppressed foreigners. I saved you because I loved you. So pass this love on. Show the same love to others that I show to you. God's gracious character and the nature of his act of salvation to the Israelites, therefore, shapes this relationship and shapes their laws. In fact, it's good to see the Ten Commandments not so much as laws anyway, um, as much as they are directions for us. The Hebrew word for the law is actually the word Torah, and Torah probably comes from a word that has a sense of pointing the way. So think of each commandment as God pointing his finger like that, going, go that way, go down that path. And this makes a lot of sense because in the wider context of the Bible, the word sin can also be translated as missing the mark, so not walking quite in the right direction. So if the goal of life is to walk towards God, which is what it is to be godly, to walk towards God, then then um, sin is to walk in slightly the wrong direction or completely the wrong direction. But God points his finger through the law and says, that's the way to go. So you try and be obedient to God in the commandments. As you do that, 
you should remind yourself that actually this is God being kind, being gracious. He tells you, for example, not to covet your neighbor's possessions for the main reason that it's not good for you to be a person that's always jealous. Like it's going to be bad for you internally in your psychology, in your soul, to be always wishing you had what the other person had. God's just being kind to us. Remembering that God is being gracious in these commandments should help us from making foolish and destructive decisions. The Ten Commandments also shows us what God is like in other ways, in more specific ways. They point to his very nature. Let's think about adultery. Not too much, but just looking at the law against it. The seventh law about adultery. The Bible shows us that God is faithful. The book of Exodus is glorious because God remembers his promises and is faithful. He's faithful to the Israelites. So if we're to describe God, one thing we can say about God's nature is that God is faithful. So why does he forbid us to commit adultery? Because adultery is breaking your faithful promise to your spouse. Adultery is about unfaithfulness. So the command not to commit adultery is a command to be like God in relation to your spouse. Be faithful to your husband or wife as God has been faithful and will continue to be faithful to you. Likewise, God is the ultimate truth and he always tells the truth. Therefore, we should not lie because to lie is to not be like God. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. 1 John 4, 6 says we should learn to discern the spirit of truth. The Bible is the word of truth. We had to learn to correctly handle the word of truth. Christians who want to be strong put on the belt of truth. So you can see why it is good and right that as people who worship the God of truth, that we should not give false testimony against our neighbor. So the law shows us what God is like, both in the general sense of his graciousness and in the specific sense of of what his character is like. What does the law tell us about us, the Ten Commandments? What does it say about us? The first three or four of the commandments are focused on God. You know, worship only God, don't make idols, misusing the name. Even the Sabbath day is about, you know, reserving a day for God specifically and and resting just as God rests. And then the fifth to the tenth are, are more about people. They're about your parents, about not killing or stealing from people, not being jealous of other people, faithfulness, about what you say to other people. This is why Jesus sums up the commandments as, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, mind and strength, and love your neighbour as yourselves. There is no other commandment greater than these, Mark chapter 12. And one way we can think about... um, how the law helps us to understand ourselves is because laws 5 to 10 are about not denying the right of other human beings to have what is rightfully theirs. Your parents deserve to be honoured as parents. When you treat them poorly, you are denying them that right. When you murder someone, you are taking away their right to life. Adultery takes the right your spouse has to an exclusive faithful relationship with you and also adultery um, affects the other people that are connected to the person you're having adultery with. 
You cannot say love God and your neighbour if you are taking away that which is rightfully theirs. This is how we can start to form a basic Christian ethic. If you want to work out if a particular action is, uh, conforms to Christian ethics or not, you can ask yourself, does what I'm about to do take away somebody else's right to, 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 what, to something or other? Um, am I actually affecting them in a way that is negative to what is rightfully theirs? Um, and, I, and we're not just talking about possessions, although that's part of it. It's, it's their life as well. It's their, their dignity. And of course, G- Jesus raises the bar on all of this, doesn't he? Because Jesus, if, if God is pointing his finger like that, going, go that way, Israelites. Go that way, people. Got my people. Jesus goes, okay, I'm just going to get out the laser pointer and point really precisely in that direction. Because Jesus says, uh, yes, yes, do not commit adultery. But in fact, if you look where the laser is pointing, right to the center, do not even have lust in your heart. Yes, do not commit murder, yes. But if you look where the laser's pointing, right at the centre of what God's saying, do not even hate people. Jesus raises the bar. God loves us so much and cares so much about how we treat each other that he does not want us to do anything physically or even think about doing anything towards each other that is harmful. So the Ten Commandments shows us how much God loves us. He devotes Commandments 5 to 10 just to us. But what, is the, what does it say about Jesus, though? Because we've just started thinking about Jesus and his laser pointer. Jesus has a few things to say about the Ten Commandments. First, he re- clearly regarded them as the revealed will of God. So for the, to the rich young ruler who wants to know how to have eternal life, Jesus quotes the Ten Commandments to him as the expressed will of God. And he attacked the Pharisees for their hypocrisy in subverting these commandments, especially the fifth commandment. And and they substituted their own human tradition for the commandments. And Jesus was very critical of this. But also Jesus has complete freedom with the law, doesn't he? So um, he kept annoying the Pharisees about what he did on the Sabbath. Um, and, you know, he, he disregarded their, their special Sabbath food laws because Jesus is free. He, he, he knows how to be free under the law. And Jesus often, what he did was he would summarize the law. He wouldn't get into the specifics, but he just summarized them. And that's what he's doing when he's giving the great commandment, love God and love your neighbor. Um, he also radicalizes the law. He doesn't replace it with another law but he brings out the original intent. He is the true interpreter of the Old Testament law. And we needed this as people because humanity, as, as humanity, we are sinful. We obscure our interpretation to suit our own needs. So for Jesus, the Messiah, the law of Sinai, given on that day with the thunder and the trumpets, is still the will of God for Israel and for his disciples. Paul, the apostle, affirms what Jesus says and says the law is good. Romans chapter 7, verse 7. 
Paul says it's a law is from God. Why? Because it roots out our sin and exposes who we really are. It's not a code of morals just to be moral. It reveals God's will for us. But Paul points us back to Jesus by saying that what the law can't do, which is to make us holy because we're not able to keep it, God accomplishes in the death of his son, Jesus. And he says, in order that the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk and not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And Christ is therefore the end of the law. In other words, nobody can keep the law perfectly. None of us, apart from Jesus. God might point us in the right direction, but no matter how hard we try, we still won't hit the target on our own. But when Jesus dies on the cross, he goes perfectly to that laser pointer. He goes, he's like a missile, just goes right, right to it. He goes where we can't go. And he brings us along with him. He says to us, you guys are completely lost. You're trying to go towards God. Hold on to my hand. I'll take you there with me. We are not saved by keeping the law. It doesn't matter how hard you try. You'll never get there. So we're not saved that way. But the law is still good, says the Apostle Paul. And now here's the added amazing thing. We have the Holy Spirit who has given us hearts of flesh. That's that opening verses, the prophecy from Jeremiah that we had read at the start of the service. Paul says our hearts have been circumcised. We are new creations. The Spirit is shaping us so that we can't head in the right direction. Our character is transformed in that, right, in that way. So as we come to conclude this, this sermon this morning, I just want you to think about how gracious God is. This is what the law shows us, how gracious God is. Because the God who first showed his grace to Israel by saving them from slavery in Egypt, then gave them his Ten Commandments as an act of grace to show them how to live, then out of grace sends his Son as the perfect interpreter of the law, and then out of grace, Jesus dies on the cross and goes straight to the target and carries us with him. And then out of grace, sends his Holy Spirit so that we can live in freedom. Wow. Do we really need to leave out the Ten Commandments now? Now that we have Jesus? Don't we have freedom? Well... They're addressed to us, these commandments. They're addressed to God's people, so they're addressed to the church. But they're our gracious gift, pointing us in the direction of life and joy and warning us against sin, which leads to death and judgment. And if we try and live them out in the power of the Spirit, knowing that Jesus has done it perfectly, then we will grow in us love of God and love of people. And we need to do this both as Christians. We need to love God and we need to love people as well. And lastly and most importantly, we should strive to be obedient to the will of God through this gift of the Holy Spirit, which, continues to, which will continue to open in you more and more um, freshness and freedom to live for God. And this transformation that you, 
you will experience, what it will do is as you try and navigate your life in the face of the post-Christian culture that's offering out to you utopia and you feel tempted to go with it, the new heart that you have will actually never get you through that. So let's pray that we can do that together. Lord God, thank you that you're a God of grace, that um, that you've given us this law as an act of grace and you've given us Jesus and you've given us the Holy Spirit uh, so that we know which way to go. We pray that we can be people who live in freedom, um, being obedient to you because of what you've done for us. Amen.